I'm Kimberly C. Paul. As I travel throughout each state, I realize that death is just a moment. It is how we live until that moment that matters. Finding connection with friends, family, and complete strangers. Journey with me. This is the Live Well, Die Well Tour. So I welcome Allison Jean Lester, an author, now living in England, but you are originally from the United States. That's right. I was born in L.A. L.A. And um, what I love about you is that you are a writer and an author, and I love writers and authors. And I'm just really happy to have you on my podcast to talk about your newest book and, and how that came to fruition. But first, you know, you've been a writer for some time. So and tell us a little bit about being a writer, because, you know, you are a writer prior to this book coming out concerning your mom's death. But uh, tell us a little bit about how that evolved and and becoming a writer, because you have a few books that are published. I do. Normally, I'm a novelist, a novelist and short story writer. Uh, but I, I, when I look back, I believe that I started being a writer because I was I wrote a lot of letters. Uh, my family, my mother was a big letter writer. And so, and I was very attached to my parents. So when I went off to university in Indiana and they were in Massachusetts and it was a really new world for me, I wrote them a lot of letters. And when I look at those, I realized that I really wanted to get them. I told them stories, but I wanted them to hear what I heard and see what I saw and feel what I felt. So I did snippets of dialogue and I did, you know, what, what things I took classes and I would tell them the whole atmosphere and all, and I would write on the back of funny advertisements. So I was really trying to give them a picture um, with sound and lights and everything. I did my third year in university in China, an entirely new world again. And we couldn't (laughs) even imagine. Yeah. This was 1985. So we couldn't call each other. So I wrote tons of letters back and my parents kept everything. So, and I continued to roll. I went to Taiwan and I moved to Japan. So until email came in, they had physical letters from me and I had physical letters from them. Um, and those included all, I, I continued to send bits and pieces of the life around me. Um, you know, uh, programs from things I'd gone to see and just things that I thought were funny. So I, I worked on observing stuff for them. I, and, um, I really enjoy observing and participating. You know, I get, I'm very friendly. So I'm out and about and things, funny things happened. I started trying to write journalistically when I was in Japan. Um, and it was actually, I sent, I had a, uh, an, an acquaintance who was an LA times correspondent and I sent him stuff and <laughs> I think he was quite embarrassed <laughs> and at, at a certain point he said to me have you thought about fiction <laughs> <laughs> um, and that was good that was good because stuff I, I mean I sent him something that now I look back on it, it, it that was ridiculous but it did make its way into a short story it did oh, wow. many years later become part of a short story um, all, everything is material so that morphed then into an effort to write fiction. 
And that took on, that was also embarrassing to a lot of people, but it eventually developed. And I have, I published first a collection of short stories called Locked Out Stories Far From Home. Those were largely set in Asia. And uh, then Lillian on Life in 2015 and Yuki Means Happiness in 2017. It was in 2018 that we started realizing my mother's melanoma was going to get her. Um, and what I think, while this book didn't start out as a narrative, the, the narrative that it became, uh, I think in the end, it's another letter. I'm writing mm. people and saying, here's what went down. I want you to see this. I want you to feel this. It has snippets of dialogue. It has excerpts from emails. It has the poetry my mother wrote. It has the poetry I wrote. And it has my recommendations in the end, like, here's what I'd do differently. But it really is, I, I feel, an intimate letter to, to people who are interested in what, what was it really like? Uh, I think we talked when we first chatted about how most of the death that we see, we privileged to be comfortable in our homes and, and you know, eating the food we choose, uh, don't see death very much. And we see it on television. Um, and um, in the films where it's either sort of exciting and violent um, or and music in the background and yeah, so peaceful and exactly. And you don't, which is why I'm really struck by how learning what the death rattle actually is, is so calming because it's so upsetting, but of course you don't see it on television, you know, you don't, and it can go on for hours and days, you know, all of these things we don't understand now that we did maybe even a generation or two ago. So while the book started, the book didn't start out as a book. I was just writing haiku each, each day or several times a day, something would be so arresting to me or so troubling or beautiful and it, it organized itself into, into 17 syllables. And I thought that would be kind of a, a nice thing to put out into the world. Here was the process. I had a, a six and a half mile ride, bicycle ride. I didn't have a car with me. I flew, I live in England. My mother was dying in Massachusetts. And um, I lived in her apartment at the assisted, not assisted living. She was in a retirement community, a wonderful, wonderful, fun lively retirement community uh, in Massachusetts. And it was a six and a half mile bicycle ride to her uh, hospice home. And so that's what I did with my mind, you hmm. know, on the way there and on the way back, I would think it through and I would see what fell into this arrangement of syllables. Um, and then as things went on and I realized my aunt was also really getting worse and worse. She'd been dying for a decade, but, um, you know, or refusing to die for a decade. Uh, I realized I had so much material that there was so much more I wanted to express. So that's how the book came about. Well, you know what's different about this book? We're, we're talking about is it, would you call it a, a memoir? Like I have come, I have come to call it a memoir now. Yeah. Um, the title being absolutely delicious, A Chronicle of Extraordinary Dying. Chronicle is a good word because I, I really lay it out. Right. Here's who she was and how she came to choose this attitude, to, to naturally have this attitude towards her dying and her death, um, mm -hmm. and my father and my aunt as well. But I think it probably sits best as a memoir. It's part biography. Right. Uh, 
it sort of feels to some people a little bit like self-help, like this could help you understand, but it's not a template. It's not, here's how to do it. Right. Just have a look at this, see if any of this works for you. Here's how it felt to me. Um, well, the, the crazy thing is that, I mean, you're, you're a published author, you have an agent, you have a publisher, mm-hmm. but this book was sort of different. Mm-hmm. It was very different. And that's, that's why I self-published it. A, it was different so that my agent was like, I actually don't know what to do with this. <laughs> I don't, these aren't my contacts. I'm a fish, fiction editor. You know, when I do publish nonfiction, it's really straightforward. So, so have a think about that. See what you want to do about that. And then, of course, I was up against um, the virus, the election, and the real importance of, of raising Black Lives Matter issues mm-hmm. in the United States. So I thought it's going to be very hard to get anybody's attention. And after that, I realized I'm not going to want to change this. I'm going to want this to be exactly how I've imagined it. So no publisher is going to want to work with Allison on this because I'm going to fight with them too much. And so how do I, how do I make it what I want? I was working with um, an illustrator, my mother's good friend, Marianne Fry, and her husband is a designer. He's a web designer and a book designer, like a beautiful book designer. So that all worked out really well. I hired him um, and he knew what she was like. He knew what I was like. He also was a friend of my mother's. So it was a lovely arrangement. It was a lovely, lovely team. She was on board because while I was processing what I was going through in these tiny poems, she kept a sketch journal, which she'd been doing for years and years, and it would just continue to be her way. And I, I mean, if I could do what she does, I would be so happy. It's beautiful what she does. And so I started sending her my haiku to see if she had an art, artistic response to it. And so we con- continued to work together when I decided to make it a bigger book. So. Oh. And that was, I mean, that was a huge process. Self-publishing, self-publishing doesn't have to be difficult. Um, I made it difficult because I wanted it to be a really beautiful book. I had mm. a vision for it that I wasn't going to compromise on. And so that took a lot of proofreading, a lot of talking, giving it to people who said that's actually not correct. You know, like doctors. Yes. Look, I can relate. <laughs> completely right? relate. Because, yeah. you know, when it when you're writing about something so personal, it, you don't want to change anything. You have a vision for it. And, you know, my with my book, I wanted it to be a journal and someone yeah. to, like, ask them to journey with me, companion yeah. with me into yeah. something. And, and I think that's where you came. And I think that's important for even a well-established author to be like, you know what? I am not going to work with you on this. This is my vision. And I love that. I love that about you, that you took that risk. Um, so let's, let's talk about your mom. Yeah. Tell us a little bit about her. Sure. Uh, my mother was uh, born in Britain uh, and was a world traveler. She always spoke with a British accent, a very sort of old-fashioned um, public school British accent. Her father had been a civil servant and uh, she was sent to boarding school, not a very good one, but and then finishing school to make her better. And um, she was born at a time when options for women weren't manifold in Britain. And um, she decided to become a stewardess. And um, at, an, at a beautiful time to be a what they called a stewardess then 
she flew for Pan Am and they were I love it. gorgeous. <laughs> and, you know, it was, it was a wonderful job for her. And, um, she, as a result of growing up, um, being educated in Britain, she could speak French, you know, the way mm. they finished girls those days, they sent them off to Switzerland and made sure they could speak French and ski. And, um, you know, she learned some Spanish and she really enjoyed people. So she was a brilliant stewardess. She was a, she was clever and she was friendly um, and so clever and friendly and beautiful that my father pursued her. He met her on a plane and really? uh, pursued her. Yeah. Uh, he was coming back from the, the first American Everest expedition, which he, wow. in, this was 1963. Yeah. And so he, you got some really interesting parents, don't, don't you? Very interesting parents. Very, very interesting parents. Um, and yes, he hadn't seen a, a, a clean woman in a really long time. And they were, you know, the stewardesses were highly <laughs> turned out. And um, and he just couldn't believe his eyes and pursued mm. her and married her. And she moved from New York to California. And so I was born in L.A. where my father was working. She was very adventuresome. Uh, but hadn't had a university education. So that was what was very interesting. She was she went to finishing school and secretarial school. That's what she was offered by her family. And <clears throat> that's what she did. She was an excellent secretary. And that's a good thing to be able to do because it, it stood her in good stead later in life when she wanted to get a job. But she started university at 40. <clears throat> so I was old enough to watch her develop and to recognize how intelligent she actually was and how, what a thirst for knowledge. She, she was very knowledgeable. She was very, very well read, but to have a thirst for some specific knowledge. And um, she dabbled for a while and then she did um, an English degree, English literature degree, and then a master's degree. And then she became a university teacher at G George Washington University, and she started writing as well. Yeah, yeah, she, and this was all crazy. Um, yeah, but this was her as a as a British woman. She became an American citizen during this time, and really made very clear to me what a wonderful opportunity the United States offered the, mm -hmm. the mature student. It's very unusual, and and probably more usual now in a lot of places. But it was very normal then. Um, and this is in the this is the late seventies, early eighties for somebody of her age to go to university, and and she had a great time. She loves young young people. She had friends who were in their teens and twenties, and she was an incredibly inclusive woman. So that and that just meant that she she learned a lot about people. Um, and a lot about life and thought a lot about life. She studied poetry very seriously. And that um, I make clear in the book, it was a, a mainstay of her thoughtful life, poetry was, reading it and writing it. So it, there's poetry is interspersed throughout the book. Um, as it's a, It was also a way for her to process things and um, love, sex, death, life, all the big, heavy important fun things mm. so, what i love about her is that she began a whole new life at 40 and i yeah. think that's a lesson for all of us in our 40s or that you can begin a new chapter at any yeah. stage of your life that's right that's right if you respect your own curiosity and that she did um she the thing is she was they wanted my brother to go to a boarding school but we couldn't afford it so 
she got a secretarial job, which is was great because she was a good secretarial job. And it was a secretarial job within Harvard University, which meant she could take she could take classes for free. So all of that came together and she was able to study initially at Harvard and then later when we moved to DC at George Washington University and get it was it was and so for me as a as a girl becoming a teenager, becoming a young woman, watching her develop, my brother and I graduated from university within the same weeks as my mother got her master's oh, wow. degree. Yeah. That's awesome. So we couldn't all go to each other's ceremonies. Like there was a little family musical chairs moving around, like who could go to whose and that. So that all of that was very um, impressive to me because she she saw an opportunity and she took it. And that was a very strong um, element of her personality. Uh, combined with a real love of nature, loved, loved, loved nature, loved gardening, loved birds, loved walking, loved exercise, and um, and was very in tune with her body and mm. not interested in its demise, not interested in not being able to do things, really hurt. She, her she sounds like she was like ahead of her time a little bit. Yeah, probably. She probably was. But my father- yeah, But paved the way for, for like- us, me. Yes. Yeah. But the, 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 and I think she probably would have gone about things the way she did, which is to say, opt not to take any uh, more radical treatment for her cancer after the immunotherapy didn't work. Mm-hmm. Uh, had she not had my father's example, but I, I'm sure my father's example was also fundamental to her thoughts on this because, sure. yeah. Yeah. So your so, father, did your father die before your mother? Nine years before. So she, she experienced this yeah. whole yeah. journey with That's him. Right. Now, what, what kind of cancer did he die from? He had, he didn't have cancer. He had oh. ALS, Lou Gehrig's disease. AL, That's right. ALS. Which, which is a, um, it's a very different type of life sentence that is because I, I there was a, a historic, historian named Tony Judd who had it at the same time as my dad and was writing about it. And he said, it's like the, the walls of the room just get closer and closer and closer because you just lose so much of your ability to move and all everything that's, um, you know, swallowing, breathing, all of it, the, the, the death from ALS is more upsetting than, than my mother's projected death would be which is why sure, sure. so for for your listeners my father decided when he had had enough of it the indignity of that disease uh, and chose to stop eating and drinking in order to hasten his death and to have a more peaceful death than ALS would have allowed him at his age he was 82 at the time um, and he was very he was he valued the way his life had been and didn't want all of this to eclipse it mm. so um so we knew largely when he was going to die and stopping eating and drinking if it's if it's taken care of we he found a hospice provider who understood his goals and they visited he died at home they visited their home their apartment it was uh, it was manageable. 
I think there are people who probably make an effort to do it without any support. And I think that's probably very, very hard. Right. We, he was able to be more comfortable as a result of yeah that. So well, she, and, yeah. yeah, well, your mom being a student, she, she yeah. just sort of, this is kind of really helped her play in her own end of life. Yeah. Well, we all studied him very carefully and saw how it could roll. We had uh, the added advantage of being all of us in agreement. None of us fought him on it. None of us asked him to stay longer, please. You know, we could see how difficult life had become. Um, it's, it's heartbreaking to see how difficult life becomes. And um, so that gave, I think, all of us an understanding of how it could go. Mm. So that, and if mom had been in pain, she, she was again, fortunate. She had melanoma that went to her brain, uh, but she wasn't in pain. Had she been in pain, I think she probably would have chosen to stop eating and drinking in order just to go a bit sooner. Mm -hmm. But as she wasn't and knew she'd be taken care of and it would be relatively comfortable. She went into a, a residential hospice so that she would be taken care of and we could we could deal with her apartment with, without her in it and she wouldn't have to worry about things and we could also yeah it, we wouldn't have to stay with her all the time if we didn't want to etc um she didn't know how long it would be we didn't know how long it would be but it didn't matter she it was i say in the book it was her retirement she was such a busy woman she was so project oriented <laughs> but she finally was going to retire and it was a really nice nine week slow mm -hmm. but steady decline um in the only really difficult part were the was the final days but once you start to understand what's going on which you can't if you don't talk about death then then you realize there's no there's no choice. This is what the body must do in order to get where it's going. It has to go through this. And having the hospice nurses who were not doing anything we didn't want them to do, just always ready to support. And you could ask them anything if you knew the questions. <laughs> yeah. That was extremely helpful. So more and more things that I wanted to basically write this letter to everybody about going, here's how it went down. Here's how it can go. Mm, because it did. It went well with your father and mother. But you exactly. had both hospice experience with both parents, one at home, one in a residential. And right. so you're a big supporter of hospice? I'm a big supporter of hospice. And, and um I recognize that in the U.S., it can be hard to access. That the you know I, I I want to underline that I truly understand that this is a very middle class book. It's you know the the what my parents were able to access is not available to everybody. Um, I also think that that some people don't know what's available to them, mm, uh, and there are charitable hospices um, who where it's you know you can access a good care, but it depends on where you live. It's luck of the draw, really yeah. luck of the draw. Whereas whereas here in the UK, it's easier to access, um, and it's a lot supported partly by the government and then a, mostly by charitable donations. Sure. 
yeah. So, but again, here it's, it's again, luck of the draw. Where is it? Is it nearby? Right, right. Now, you know, let's, I know the book is about your mom, but I, you know, talking about your dad and having these both experiences, you know, what did you learn about your own death and your own journey through your father's death, how he approached it through the nine weeks with your mom dealing with melanoma in a hospice residential? I mean, and, and how did that, how did that come into, I need to write about this mm-hmm. and, and maybe help other people recognize mm-hmm. that, that there are choices out there when it comes yeah. to end of life. Well, in, t- in terms of the first part of the question about my own death, it's of course, it's challenging because I'm not confronted by it right now. I like to think, I mean, like all of us like to think we'll die old, you know, and, and I think that was that was a, a big part of it. My parents were elderly and my mother had never wanted to reach 80. The number just really bothered her. She just <laughs> it was a terrible idea to live that long. Um, and so that was fine with her. She, a month before her 80th, she, she, yeah. <laughs> Which, <laughs> the woman has it together, man. <laughs> yeah. Single-minded, very project oriented. So, um, so the, <laughs> The idea that by the time I am I am old, I will probably become infirm, and I will accept that. I think that I have a better chance of accepting it, having seen that my parents had to accept. Mm-hmm. They had terminal conditions. Neither of them wanted the measures they would have to undertake to stave off what they had. My mother hated hospitals, so more time in hospital and radiation and, and, and more things that would make her probably wreck what was the rest of her life could be like as right. it was. It was a really enjoyable. Um, ALS has no cure right now. It's, it's not well understood. And um, you remember the ice bucket challenge. People yes. are really trying hard, but it's, it's a tricky mysterious and and sometimes it's slow sometimes it's quick sometimes it's it's just really interesting and and you mentioned the ice bucket the ice bucket challenge one of the creators just recently passed away with the um, ALS because yeah he created created that wanted to make it more in the in the front now when you experienced both your parents death and it was it was inevitable um you know, peaceful and well kind of organized in my interpretation. Is that, did that empower you to even think about how you wanted to die? It did. It did. I, I want to add into the mix how my aunt, uh, who died three months after my mother, she's my father's younger sister, died three months after my mother. Um, she was not accepting. Mm. Um, and so that also added into the mix because I really, really want to, it empowered me to know that I will try very hard to say that's enough. That is enough. Um, interestingly, my kids who are now 25 and 23 said both, I had a very similar conversation with each of them 
where they said to me, oh, we now know how you want to go. We, we were watching very carefully and we will. And I said to them, that's wonderful. But that was how she wanted to go. Basically, like, I don't know how it's going to be. But what I do want is for us to talk like my parents talked. That was the main thing. And that's a big message in the book. Like, just listen, just let me talk to you about this. I think a lot of young people, um, when their parents start talking about that, or what I, I say young, I'm 54, I'm young, right? You're absolutely are, young. <laughs> <laughs> any, any, anybody who has a parent who starts talking about how they want to die, we, we want to go, oh, come on, you'll live forever. Right. And I, I do want people to let their parents talk because they won't live forever and they want to get things sorted out and they want you to understand that and that they're probably okay with that. If they're talking about it, they're probably okay with it. So please support them. Like if you don't feel okay with it, don't load that on them. Tell your spouse or your friend. But tell you know your mom what, that's, dad. A, that's a great point. And you know, recently among the tour, I had people like in their 70s, like, look, we we do not mind talking about death, but our children don't uh, want to hear it. And yeah. and how do you help us with that? And it was an interesting interesting conversation uh, about that. And I, I think that that's one of the lessons that you want people to walk away from this book. It absolutely is. And you think you know your parents, but they might want something different from what you think. I bumped into a friend in the neighborhood recently, um, was talking to her about the book. And she said that she was so glad she'd asked her mother before she died. She was in the hospital saying, you know, what, what sort of, what are you thinking? And what her mother described for her funeral was not at all what her daughter would have decided for her. Like, not at all. She was so surprised. And, and how wonderful that they had that conversation and her mother could relax and she could relax. Um, and also among siblings, like, you're going to argue otherwise. Mm -hmm. You definitely are going to argue otherwise. So, uh, so we had this struggle with my aunt because she didn't want to talk about it. So what we ended up doing, we had to respect that she didn't want to talk about it. But in order for us to feel like we, we, we wouldn't be caught blindsided. We, we wrote to her and said, here's what we feel like you might want. Here's what you kind of hinted at. So this is what we think we'll do. And if they, you don't want that, please tell us. Mm. So we'd written the letter and we, she didn't never mentioned it, but we know she read it. So mm -hmm. that at least was, she knew we cared and loved and wanted to do what she wanted, but she didn't have to talk about it if she didn't want to. That's, that's a great suggestion um, for those who don't want to talk about it. But, you know, I have to say when you open up and lean into these real authentic conversations, especially if, if you're not the one that the, you know, that the death is going to be occurring to or whatever, it really does somehow alleviate, you know, the G word, the guilt word. Yeah. And, and we on this side, watching someone, you know, journey through this transition, it makes us feel good knowing that we are honoring what they're chose. And so there's yeah. no left unquestions. Like I, I had to make a decision based on my mother's illness and do, I feel guilty of it. There's none of that. Yes. It was, it was so relaxing to know what to do all the time, 
all the time I knew what to do. When I got up in the morning, when I, it was, you know, it was 10 weeks that I was in the States between when I arrived and finally left. I, I knew what to do every day. How often does that? I don't, I don't know that in my own home, but I knew that about <laughs> how my mother was dying. You know, that, that was, is so beautiful. That yeah. is so freaking beautiful. So helpful. So, so helpful. And so even now, I think what I'm doing with Andy, my husband now, is bring up my own death more often than I would. Be, and if I see something, I noticed recently, I love the ocean. And I noticed mm. recently a company that was making like a, a, a reef. You could get a, a, a prefab reef, like coral. It's not coral, but it, it, it's a habitat for a fish that you can press. Your ashes will be mixed in and you can oh, press wow. like eco-friendly mementos. They can be impressed into it. So the fish will swim. I was like, Andy, Andy, look, 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 look. <laughs> this is the one for me, you know, and he's like, "Yay, you found it!" You know, <laughs> you're my kind of people when we get excited <laughs> about stuff like this. You know, I, no yeah. one wants me around the dinner table because I'm like, "Y'all want to talk about how excited I am about dying?" And they're like, "Shut up!" <laughs> exactly, and yet, and yet, there it is. There it is. It's like you're. Like we'll talk about ingrown toenails because those are hard to avoid too. Right. But they could be more painful, you know, and last longer. Well, you know, I think the more we talk about it, the more we're able to live mm-hmm. fully in the present moment. I agree. I, I and I feel that on a on a daily basis. And and I feel your even your energy, like even laughing about, <laughs> yeah. about this because you know, one day we will be there. Yeah. And if if we have experiences through laughter, yeah, and through conversation, I believe it really does help those to start that grieving process when we're gone. I really do. Yes, it is. And and memories of you could be open because that's the tone that's been set. You know, you can continue talking about it. If, for example, I have to face death very soon. I wonder what that will be like. Like mm-hmm. I said earlier, like what if we die as elderly women? Okay. Right. But if suddenly we, we discover, um, I learned, I learned to yesterday, I think yesterday or the day before that a very good friend younger than I am has naso, nasopharyngeal cancer, nasal in cancer oh, in, wow. uh, the back, like the back of her throat. Um, a tricky one yep a very tricky one and she's she's younger than I am and but she's not dead let's see what happens but you know it it could I could have that too you know who knows yeah or you know there's tragic accidents that happen all the time of course so if we are suddenly facing do I accept this or not um I think that as a younger person you put up with a lot more medical intervention than you do as an older person, I think, um, uh, unless you're my aunt, you know, she wanted, she wanted everything. She wanted stuff that didn't exist. She wanted stuff that had nothing to do with what she had. You know, mm. I, I had this incredible discussion with her uh, that I still can't really unpack. Maybe in your experience with all of the conversation you're doing, you can help me with this. Sure. She had, uh, aortic stenosis. So her heart wasn't getting the blood through well. And as a result, as, as peop- most people know, with a, with a heart disease, 
you have trouble moving fluid through your body and her mm-hmm. leg swelled up and she and it was horrifying to her what her legs looked like so even though she had also signed on to hospice she took against them because nobody wanted to take her to the doctor so she insisted on being taken to the doctor she wanted to be taken to the foot doctor and the ankle doctor and the knee doctor and the everybody because look at my leg you know, look at my legs, stick a needle in it and just take it out, whatever. Mm. And f- and it was really, it was uh, difficult also for the doctors because uh, you're, we wanted to respect her. And so she was taken to the doctor and the doctor was like, uh, uh, <laughs> this, this isn't a, a, actually a foot thing, you know? So um, eventually at one point where I, I just couldn't hold my tongue anymore, I said to her, you, you, you know, you have a heart problem, right? Like you, you, the heart can't function well enough to move the blood fast enough, and and the legs will swell up. That's why they have you sleeping with your with your feet up. You, you do understand, and have you in the TED hose and the circulation and on Lasix and yes, all of it. And she leaned forward. She sat there for a second, and she went, "Yeah, I secretly know that." And. I didn't know what to do with that. Hmm. You know, I, throughout my journey, it's a fine line to respect those who want to be educated and then those who want to avoid. Yeah. But I found, I found a pattern with just personalities. She must've been, she's been an avoider all her life. Yeah. Yeah. Not really at end of life. Right. Only at end of life. Yes. And so I think the way we have lived sometimes will be really reflective in the way we are transitioning through death. That's it. So it, it, it the personality type just trumped the knowledge. Yeah. I mean, it does, yeah. it, you don't change. No. And she was a hoarder. So she was going to hold. <laughs> right. you know, she was going to really hold on tight. Yeah, yeah. You know, and, and I do find that some people who struggle even with like, um, alcoholism, they have a hard time letting go, um, at the very end of life because of, it's really interesting. I was talking to a friend years ago and like, my mother, my grandmother won't let go. And I'm like, did she have any illnesses like that, that she carried through her life? And she goes, well, she, she was an alcoholic. Mm -hmm. And I think that during that transition, you deal with a lot of what you use to numb out to. Uh-huh. And a yeah. lot of coming to realize, you know, that there's no numbing out. You can yeah. put something on it, but in the end, you will face everything through, yeah. throughout this journey. And that's just a, a huge assumption and a spiritual sort of kind of high-level explanation. But I do feel that people's lives are very reflected in their transition. Yeah, sure, sure. So that's what we were seeing clearly and that's why i put my aunt's death in there as a counterpoint to how she didn't she didn't offer herself any peace but again she it was her death you know that was right. that that was her choice and we we I should have shut up more, you know, I should have let no. her well, <laughs> I don't <laughs> think that. I think you know, I think I think that you did you you were treating her like your parents treated you. Mm-hmm. And and so even the small act of of helping her begin that conversation, mm-hmm. I, 
I think it it gave you some affirmations that that this that it was okay to make those decisions. Yeah. So, you know, I, I also believe that everything happens for a reason. Mm-hmm. And and but also that we do have this divine control over decisions and choices. Right. So, you know, regret is a hard thing. Um and and I hope, um, I just hope that when my parents face end of life, that I that I can be the adult. To recognize yeah. that this that I that I still want my dad, but I but I respect him enough that this is his death too, right? Um, and his and we do this all alone, yeah. you know. So we want you to do it your way. You're going right. to do it once, and you're going to do it alone. Right. And and I I think that you paid homage to that with trying yeah. to help us or you and your family left behind to deal with some of those factors too. So touche for you, man. I really, Uh but you know, tell me, tell me where to find this book, because I do think that you have a rare perspective on, especially with your dad and your mom and your aunt. And this is, you, you mentioned it was like a toolkit too, like a guide or your guide through it. That's right. That's right. Um, it is, I, it, again, like I said, I wanted it to be like any other book anybody would have published for me. So I have done the paperback, I have done a Kindle version, um, and I have done an audio book as well. So yes, and uh, uh, which meant, you know, going over and over and over and reliving the story again and again and again. But it's been a beautiful experience. Uh, so you can find it in, you can get it in bookstores because I have gone with um, the company Ingram who are major distributors. So you can order sure. it in any, if you want to support your favorite bookstore, go in and, and, and order it and they'll get it for you. Uh, if you don't have a bookstore near you, bookshop.org is a wonderful new, uh, which support supports bookstores, wonderful new online service. Uh, you can get it, as I say, as a digital book, audio books. It's not up on Audible yet, but on many other Kobo and Hulu, uh, Hulu and other uh, audiobook sites. Um, so keep an eye out for it. Listeners in the UK, I don't know if you have listeners in the UK. I but, do. Oh, do, well done. I um, other than me, <laughs> you can buy it by my website, which is www.alisongeanlester.com, because then I can send. If you're in the UK, I can send you a signed copy. Oh yeah, I know because we were having issues because I wanted a signed copy, I and mean, I mean yeah. it's so expensive to it's like ridiculous. It's uh, awful. I know. I know it is. I could. What I could do is I could. I could sign a nice piece of paper and you could stick it in. <laughs> Let's do it. Let's do <laughs> it. Do that. Okay. And I'll make I tell you, Allison, <laughs> I can't thank you so much for sharing your mom's story as well as your father's and your aunt's and, and writing this beautiful book, absolutely delicious, about uh, just a different way to see and journey with uh, your mom through her end of life. And and I just really appreciate who you are in my life, in in the author's world, but also just a person that has experienced both parents who have faced end of life and did it really, really well. Oh, well, thank you. I, I'm so glad you in, enjoyed my little microcosm because I'm in awe of your bus trip and uh, that's what <laughs> excited to do. And we will talk more about that as well. Well, and, and anytime you're in the United States, you need to let me know because I'll, I'll try to find a way to come to you because we, we've oh, got God. to have cocktails and, like, and really discuss uh, the ins and outs of our travels for sure. Exactly. Oh, I look forward to that. Thank you so, so much. 
Thanks for joining us today. And remember, you're the designer. This podcast is produced by Jason Andre with Seven Season Films. If you're interested in telling your story via podcast, look him up. You can find him at sevenseasonfilms.com.